There was no reply. Perhaps they were just tired, but they couldn't be more tired than he was. How tiring was it being dead? At least you could lie down. Mal, Milo rumbled behind him, what is happening here? Why did the priest try to smash the holy stones? This was not the time to say, I don't know. The brothers had begging, hungry looks, like dogs waiting to be fed. They wanted an answer. It would be nice if it was the right answer, but if it couldn't be, then any answer would do, because then we would stop being worried. And then his mind caught a light. That's what the gods are, an answer that will do. Because there's food to be caught and babies to be born and life to be lived, and so there is no time for big, complicated and worrying answers, please give us a simple answer, so that we don't have to think. Because if we think, we might find answers that don't fit the way we want the world to be. So what can I say now? I think he thinks they aren't really holy, Mao managed. It's because of the calipers carving, yes, said Pilu. That's what he was trying to smash. He thinks you're right. They were made by the trousermen. They were inside coral, said Milo. Reefs are old. Trousermen are new. Mao saw Ataba stir. He went and sat down next to the priest as the brothers manoeuvred the canoe around and fought it back through the gap. People had gathered on the beach trying to see what was happening. When the brothers were busy, Mao leaned down. Who made the god anchors, Ataba? he whispered. I know you can hear me. The priest opened one eye. It's not your place to question me, demon boy. I saved your life. It's a ragged old life and not worth saving, said Ataba, sitting up. I don't thank you. It's very ragged indeed and smells of beer, but you must pay me back, otherwise it belongs to me. You can buy it back, but I set the price. Ataba looked furious. He struggled, as if he was being boiled in anger and resentment, but he knew the rule as well as anyone. All right, he snapped. What do you want, demon boy? The truth, said Mao. The priest pointed a finger at him. No, you don't. You want a special truth. You want the truth to be a truth that you like. You want it to be a pretty little truth that fits what you already believe. But I will tell you a truth you will not like. People want their gods, demon boy. They want to make holy places, whatever you say. Mao wondered if the priest had been reading his mind. He would have needed good eyesight, because rosy clouds of exhaustion floated across Mao's thoughts, as if he was dreaming. Sleep always wanted paying. If you put off sleeping for days on end, then sleep would sooner or later turn up with its hand out. Did the gods carve the white stone? His tongue slurred the words. Yes, that was a lie, Mao managed. The stones have trousermen tool marks on them. Surely gods don't need tools? Men are their tools, boy. They put the idea of carving into the minds of our ancestors. And the other stones? Not only gods can get into a mind, boy, as you should know. You think they're demons, said Mao. Demon stones. Where you find gods, you find demons? That might be true, said Mao. Behind him he heard Milo snort. It is my position to know the truth of things, Ataba shouted. Stop that, old man, said Mao as gently as he could. I'll ask you one more time, and if I think you're lying, then I will let the gods blow your soul over the edge of the world. Ha! But you don't believe in the gods, demon boy, or do you? Don't you listen to yourself, boy? I do. You shout and stamp and yell that there are no gods, and then you shake your fist at the sky and revile them for not existing. 
You need them to exist so that the flames of your denial will warm you in your self-righteousness. That's not thinking. That's just a hurt child screaming in pain. Mao's expression did not change, but he felt the words clang back and forth in his head. What do I believe, he thought. What do I really believe? The world exists, so perhaps Emo exists. But he is far away and does not care. Lokaha exists, that is certain. The wind blows, fire burns, and water flows for good and bad, right and wrong. Why do they want gods? We need people, that is what I believe. Without other people we are nothing. And I believe I am more tired than I can remember. Tell me who you think carved the stones, Ataba, he said, keeping his voice calm. Who brought them here and carved them so long ago they lie under the coral? Tell me this, because I think you are screaming too. All sorts of thoughts twisted their way across the priest's face, but there was no escape. You will be sorry, he moaned. You will wish you didn't know. You will be sorry that you did this to me. Mao raised his finger as a warning. It was all he could manage. The pink hogs of tiredness trampled through his thoughts. In a minute he would fall over. When Ataba spoke next, in a whispered hiss, it echoed as if Mao was hearing it inside a cave. The darkness was made of too many thoughts, too much hunger, too much pain. Who brings rocks here and leaves them, boy? Think on that. How many people will you hurt even more with your wonderful truth? But Mao was already sleeping. Mr. Black hammered on the door of the Cutty Wren's wheelhouse for the second time. Let me in, Captain, in the name of the Crown. A hatch in the door slid back. Where is she? said a voice full of suspicion. She's below, the gentleman shouted above the roar of the wind. Are you certain? She has a habit of jumping out. She's below, I assure you. Open the door. It's freezing. Are you positive? For the last time, man, let us in. Who's us, exactly? said the voice, not to be fooled easily. For heaven's sake, Mr. Red is with me. Is he alone? Open in the name of the Crown, Captain. The door opened. A hand dragged both men inside. Behind them, bolts snapped into place with a noise like gunshots. At least it was warmer in there, and the wind was held at bay. Mr. Black felt as though some giant had stopped punching him. Is it always like this? he said, shaking the water off his oilskins. This? This is a fine day in the roaring forties, Mr. Black. I was about to go and have a sunbathe. You've come about the signal, I dare say. There was something about a tidal wave. A big one. Got this from a navy ship out of Port Mercia an hour ago. Flooding throughout the western Pelagic. Great loss of life and damage to shipping. Port Mercia safe, it says here. Source of the wave, estimated as seventy miles south of the Mothering Sundays. That's still well to the north of us. And this happened weeks ago, said Mr. Red who had been scrutinising the pencilled message. That is true, gentlemen, but I've been working things out, and I'm wondering where the sweet Judy might have been about that time. Old Roberts likes to island hop, and the Judy isn't the fastest ship. The King's daughter is on board the Judy. So the air might have been caught up in this? Could be, sir, said the captain gravely. He coughed. I could set a course to pass through there, but it would slow us down. I need to think about this, snapped Mr. Black. "'And I need a decision soon, sir. "'It's a matter of wind and water, see. "'They are not yours to command, nor mine.' "'Who do the Mothering Sundays belong to?' "'said Mr. Black to Mr. Red, who shrugged. "'We lay claim to them, sir, "'to keep the Dutch and French out. 
but they're all tiny and there's no one there, no one to speak of, anyway. The wren could cover a lot of ocean, sir, the captain offered, and it sounds like the king is safe, and of course you get some rum types fetching up in out-of-the-way places like that. Mr. Black stared ahead. The cutty wren was flying like a cloud. The sails boomed, the rigging sang. It sneered at the miles. After some time, he said, "'For all kinds of good reasons, beginning with the fact that we cannot be certain of the sweet Judy's course, and there are many of these islands, too much time has passed, His Majesty would certainly have sent out searchers.' Mr. Red said, "'He doesn't know he is king, sir. He may well have led the search himself.' "'There's cannibals and pirates to the northwest,' said the captain. "'And the Crown requires that we find the king as soon as possible,' said Mr. Black. "'Would either of you gentlemen like to make this decision for me?' There was a dreadful silence, broken only by the roar of their speed. "'Very well,' said Mr. Black, rather more calmly. "'Then we follow our original orders. Captain, I will sign the log to this effect.' "'That must have been a hard decision to make, sir,' said Mr. Red sympathetically. "'Yes, it was.' Chapter 8. It Takes a Lifetime to Learn How to Die Daphne was eating for Mrs. Gurgle, who had no teeth. She did this by chewing her food for her to get it good and soft. It was, she thought, as she chomped dutifully on a lump of salt-pickled beef, very unlike life at home. But life at home seemed unreal now in any case. What home was, really was, was a mat in a hut where she slept every night, asleep so deep that it was black, and the place where she made herself useful. And she could be useful here. She was getting better at the language every day, too. But she couldn't understand Mrs. Gurgle at all. Even Carley had difficulty there, and had told Daphne, very old speaking, from the long ago. She was known all over the islands, but none of the survivors remembered her as anything but ancient. The boy Otto E., could remember only that she had plucked him off a floating tree and drunk seawater so that he could have the fresh water in her water-bag. The old woman tapped her on the arm. Daphne absent-mindedly spat out the lump of meat and handed it over. It wasn't, she had to admit, the most pleasant way of passing the time. There was a certain amount of ah oh about it, if you let your mind dwell on it. But at least the old woman wasn't chewing food for her. Ermintrude, the word hung in the air for a moment. She looked around, shocked. No one on the island knew that name. In front of her, in the garden, a few women were tending the plants, but most people were working in the fields. Beside her, the old woman sucked enthusiastically at the newly softened meat with the sound of a blocked drain. It had been her own voice. She must have been daydreaming to take her mind off the chewing. "'Bring the boy here! Bring the boy here now!' There it was again. Had she said it? Her lips hadn't moved. She would have felt them do so. This wasn't what people really meant when they said, You're talking to yourself. This was herself talking to her. She couldn't ask, Who are you? Not to her own voice. Pilu had said Mao heard dead grandfathers in his head, and she'd thought, Well, something like that would be bound to happen after all the boy had been through. Could she be hearing his ancestors? Yes, 
said her own voice. Why? she asked. Because this is a sacred place. Daphne hesitated. Whoever was doing this knew her name, and no one here knew her real name, no one. It wasn't a secret you'd like to put about. And she wasn't mad, because surely a mad person wouldn't have spent the last half hour chewing food for Mrs. Gurgle. Oh, um, perhaps that wasn't the best example, because her grandmother and people like her would say that for a girl who would be queen if 139 people died, to be chewing up the food of someone who looked, sounded, and smelled like Mrs. Gurgle was just about as mad as you could get without actually drooling. Maybe it was God, but that didn't feel right. She'd listened hard for God in church, especially after that horrible night, but of course he was a busy person. Apparently there were lesser gods here, though. Perhaps this was one of them. She looked around her. There were no pews and certainly no polished brass, but there was a quiet busyness about it, a silence with a texture of breezes. The wind never seemed to blow hard in here, and loud noises got lost among the trees. It was a sacred place, and not because of some god or other, it was just sacred, because it existed, because pain and blood and joy and death had echoed in time and made it so. The voice came again. Quickly now! Daphne looked at the place. A couple of women were gardening and didn't even glance up, but there had been something about that quickly now that went straight to her feet. I must have been talking to myself, she thought as she hurried out of the place. People often do that. It's perfectly normal when you're a shipwrecked sailor, I'm sure. She ran down the hill. There was a small crowd there. At first she thought some more survivors had turned up, and then she saw the figure slumped against the corner of the new hut. What have you done to him? she shouted as she ran. Pilou turned, while the rest of the group drew back hurriedly in the face of her anger. Us! I tried to make him lie down, but he fights me. I'd swear he's asleep, but I've never seen anyone sleep like that. Daphne hadn't either. Mao's eyes were open wide, but she got the uneasy feeling that if they were looking at a beach, it certainly wasn't this one. His arms and legs were twitching as if they wanted to move, but couldn't. She knelt down beside Mao and put her ear to his chest. She hardly needed to get that close. His heart was trying to break free. Pilu stepped closer to her and whispered, "'There's been trouble.' He managed to suggest that the trouble had not been made by him, very definitely not by him, and that he was against trouble of any kind, particularly any trouble up close. Ever since the Twinkle song, he had always been a little nervous of Daphne. She was a woman of power. "'What kind of trouble?' she said, looking around. But she didn't need an answer, because Ataba was standing with a ferocious expression. By the look of it, there had been, as Cook back home would have put it, words. He turned to look at her, his face like a smacked bottom, at Cook again, and then snorted and turned toward the lagoon. At that moment the water mounded, and Milo walked up the sloping white sand, water pouring off him. He had a godstone on his shoulder. "'I want to know what's been going on,' said Daphne. She was ignored. Everyone was watching the approaching Milo. "'I told you, I forbid you to bring that ashore,' Ataba yelled. "'I am a priest of water!' Milo gave him a long, slow look, and then kept on coming, his muscles moving like oiled coconuts under his skin. Daphne could hear the sand being crushed under his feet, as he plodded over to the god-anchors and set his burden down with a grunt. It sank a little into the beach. There were already four lying in the sand. That isn't right, is it? she wondered. Weren't there supposed to be three, but one got lost? Where did the other ones come from? 
she saw the big man stretch himself out with a cracking of joints, before turning to the little crowd and saying, in the slow and solemn voice of a man who tests the truth of every word before letting it go, If anyone touches the stones, they answer to me. That one was made by a demon, shouted Ataba. He looked at the crowd for some support here, but didn't find any. The people weren't on anyone's side as far as Daphne could tell. They just didn't like shouting. Things were bad enough as they were. Demon, rumbled Mido. You like that word, demon boy you call him, but he saved you from the shark, right? And you said we made the god anchors. You did, I heard you. Only some, said Ataba, backing away. Only some. You never said some, said Milo quickly. He never said some, he announced to the crowd. He was speaking for his life, and he never said some. I have good ears, and he never said some. Who cares what he said, said Daphne. She turned to the nearest woman. Get Mao some blankets. He's as cold as ice. Mao did rescue Ataba from a shark, said Pilo. That is a lie. I was in no danger, the priest began, and stopped, because Milo had started to growl. You should have seen it, said Pilo quickly, turning to the crowd with his eyes wide open and his arms outspread. It was the biggest one I have ever seen. It was as long as a house. It had teeth like, like, like huge teeth. As it came toward us, its speed made waves that almost sank the canoe. Daphne blinked and looked sideways at the people. Their eyes were as wide as Pilu's. Every mouth hung open. And Mao just waited, treading water, the boy went on. He did not turn and flee. He did not try to get away. He looked it in the eye, there in its own world. He waved at the shark, the shark with the teeth like machetes, the shark with teeth like needles, to call it to him. He called it to him. Yes, he did. I was in the water, and I saw. He was waiting for it, and the shark came faster. It came like a spear. Faster and faster it came. In the audience, someone started to whimper. And then I saw an amazing thing, Pilu went on, his eyes wide and gleaming. It was the most amazing thing I have ever seen. I will never see anything like it if I live to be a hundred. As the shark charged through the water, as the shark with the huge teeth sped toward him, as the shark as long as a house came through the water like a knife, Mao, he pissed himself. The little waves of the lagoon lapped at the sand with small sup-sup noises, suddenly loud in the bottomless moment of silence. The woman, bringing a grubby blanket from the hut, almost walked into Daphne, because she couldn't bear to take her eyes off Pilu. "'Oh, thank you, Pilu,' Daphne thought bitterly, as the magic drained away. "'You were doing so well. You had their hearts in the palm of your hand, and then you had to go and spoil it by—' "'And that was when I saw,' whispered Pilu, lowering his voice and staring around the circle of faces, catching every eye. "'That is when I knew. That—' is when I understood. He was no demon. He was no god, no hero, no. He was nothing but a man, a man who was frightened, a man like you and me. But would we wait there, full of fear, as the shark with huge teeth came to eat us? He did. I saw him. And as the shark was upon him, he shouted at it in scorn. He shouted these words, Da, Na, Ha, Pa. Da, na, ha, pa, several people mumbled as if they were in a dream. And the shark turned and fled from him. The shark could not face him. The shark turned about, and we were saved. 
I was there. I saw this. Daphne realised that her hands were sweating. She had felt the shark brush past her. She had seen its terrible eye. She could draw a picture of its teeth. She had been there. She had seen it. Pilo's voice had shown it to her. She remembered when Mr. Griffith, from the Nonconformist Chapel, had been invited to speak in the parish church. The sermon was rather damp, because he spat a fine spray when he shouted, but the man was so full of God that it overflowed everywhere. He preached as if he had a flaming sword in his hand. Bats fell out of the rafters. The organ started up by itself. The water sloshed in the font. All in all, it was very unlike the sermons of the Reverend Fleablow Poundup, who on a fine day could get through a mumbled service in half an hour, with his butterfly net and collecting jar leaning against the pulpit. When they had got home, her grandmother had stood in the hallway, taken a deep breath and said, Well! And that was that. Normally, people tended to be very quiet in the parish church. Perhaps they were afraid of waking God up in case he asked pointed questions or gave them a test. But Pilou had unfolded the story of the shark like Mr. Griffith had preached. He had unfolded a picture in the air and then made it move. Was it true? Had it really happened like that? But how could it not be true now? They had been there. They had seen it. They had shared it. She looked down at Mao. His eyes were still open and his body was still twitching. And then she looked up and into the face of Kale, who said, Lokaha has taken him. You mean he's dying? Yes. The cold hand of Lokaha is on him. You know him. He does not sleep. He eats not enough. He carries all weights, runs every distance. In his head, too much thinking. Has anyone here seen him not working, guarding, digging, carrying? He tries to carry the world on his back. And when such people weaken, Lokaha springs. Daphne leaned down to Mao. His lips were blue. You're not dying, she whispered. You can't be dying. She shook him gently, and there was a rush of air from his lips, faint as a spider's sneeze. Does? Does not happen, she said triumphantly. See, Lokaha hasn't got him yet. Look at his legs. He is not dying. In his head, he is running. Carle looked carefully at Mao's twitching legs and put her hand on his forehead. Her eyes widened. I have heard of this, she said. It's shadow stuff. It will kill him even so. The sky woman will know what to do. Where is she, then? You chew her food for her, said Carle, smiling. The unknown woman appeared behind her, staring at Mao in horror. Mrs. Gurgle, said Daphne, she is very old, a woman of great power. Then we'd better hurry. Daphne put her hands under Mao's shoulders and pulled him up. To her astonishment, the unknown woman handed her baby to Carle and took Mao's feet. She looked at Daphne expectantly. Together they ran up the hill, leaving everyone else behind after they had gone a little way. By the time they arrived in the hut, Mrs. Gurgle was waiting for them, with her little black eyes gleaming. As soon as Mao was laid on a mat, she changed. Until now, Mrs. Gurgle had been rather a strange, half-sized person to Daphne. She had lost most of the hair on her head— moved on all fours like a chimpanzee, and looked as if she'd been made out of old leather bags. Also, she was, frankly, grabby when it came to food, and tended to fart in an unladylike way, although that was mostly the fault of the salt-pickled beef. Now she crawled around Mao carefully, touching him gently here and there. 
She listened intently at his ears, and lifted each of his legs in turn, watching the twitching as closely as if she was observing a new species of wild animal. "'He can't die,' Daphne blurted out, unable to bear the suspense. "'He just doesn't sleep. He spends all night on guard. But you can't die of not sleeping. Can you?' The ancient woman gave her a wide grin and picked up one of Mao's feet. Slowly she ran a stubby black fingernail along his twitching sole and seemed disappointed in whatever it was she learned by it. "'He isn't dying, is he? He can't die,' Daphne insisted again as Carle came in. Other people crowded around the door. Mrs. Gurgle ignored them and gave Daphne a look that said unmistakably, "'Oh, and who are you who knows everything?' and did some more leg-lifting and prodding just to make the point that she was in charge. Then she looked up at Carle and spoke at high speed. At one point Carle laughed and shook her head. "'She says he is in the—' Carle stopped, and her lips moved as she tried to find a word she thought Daphne might understand. "'The place between,' she said. "'Shadow place. Not alive, not dead.' "'Where is it?' said Daphne. This was another difficult one. "'A place with no place. You cannot walk there.' "'Cannot swim there. On sea, no. On land, no. Like shadow. Yes, shadow place. "'How can I get there?' This one was relayed to Mrs. Gurgle, and the reply was abrupt. "'You? Cannot. Look, he saved me from drowning. He saved my life. Do you understand? Besides, it's your custom. If someone saves your life, it's like a debt. You must pay it back, and I want to.' Mrs. Gurgle seemed to approve of this when it was translated. She said something. Carle nodded. She says that to get to the shadow world you have to die, she translated. She is asking if you know how to. Do you mean it's something you have to practice? Yes, many times, said Carle calmly. I thought you only got one go, Daphne said. Mrs. Gurgle was suddenly in front of the girl. She stared at her fiercely, moving her head this way and that, as if she were trying to find something in Daphne's face. Then, before Daphne could move, the old woman suddenly grabbed her hand, "'dragged it onto her own heart and held it there. "'Boom, boom,' she said. "'Heartbeat? Er, yes,' said Daphne, "'trying very hard and very unsuccessfully not to feel embarrassed. "'It's quite faint. I mean, you've got a very... a lot of...' "'The heartbeat stopped. "'Daphne tried to pull her hand away, but it was held tight. "'Mrs. Gurgle's expression was blank and slightly preoccupied, "'as if she was trying to do a mildly complicated sum in her head.' and the room seemed to darken. Daphne couldn't help herself. She started to count under her breath. Fifteen, sixteen, and then boom. So faint you could easily have missed it. Boom. A little stronger this time. Boom, boom. And it was back. The old woman smiled. Er, I could try it, Daphne began. Just show me what to do. There is no time to teach you, she says, said Carle. She says it takes a lifetime to learn how to die. I can learn very fast. Carle shook her head. Your father looks for you. He is a trouserman chief, yes. If you are dead, what do we say? When your mother weeps for you, what do we say? Daphne felt the tears coming and tried to shut them out. My mother cannot weep, she managed. Once more, Mrs. Gurgle's dark little eyes looked into Daphne's face as if it were clear water. And there Daphne was, on the stairs, in her nightdress, with the blue flowers on it, hugging her knees and staring in horror at the little coffin on top of the big one, and sobbing because the little boy would be buried all alone in a box instead of with his mother and would be so frightened. 
she could hear the lowered voices of the men talking to her father, and the clink of the brandy decanter, and smell the ancient carpet. There was the sound of a busy stomach, and there was Mrs. Gurgle, too, sitting on the carpet, chewing salt-pickled beef, and watching her with interest. The old woman stood up and reached for the little coffin, laying it gently on the carpet. She reached up again, and lifted the lid of the big coffin, and looked at Daphne expectantly. There were footsteps below in the hallway, as a maid crossed the tiled floor and disappeared through the green baize door to the kitchens, sobbing. She knew what to do. She'd done it in her imagination a thousand times. She lifted the small, cold body from his lonely coffin, kissed his little face, and tucked him in beside their mother. The crying stopped. She blinked at Mrs. Gurgle's bright eyes there in front of her again. The sound of the sea filled her ears. The old woman turned to Carlay, and she rattled and spluttered out what sounded like a long speech, or perhaps it was some kind of command. Carlay started to reply, but the old woman raised a finger very sharply. Something had changed. She says, It is you who must fetch him back, said Carlay, a bit annoyed. She says, There is a pain taken away, there at the other end of the world. Daphne wondered how far those dark eyes could see. There at the other end of the world, maybe. How did she do that? It hadn't felt like a dream. It, it felt like a memory. But a pain was fading. She says, You are a woman of power like her, Carly went on reluctantly. She has walked often in the shadow world. I know this to be true. She is famous. Mrs. Gurgle gave Daphne another little smile. She says she will send you into the shadows, Carly continued. She says you have very good teeth and have been kind to an old lady. Er, uh, it was no trouble, said Daphne and thought furiously. How did she know? How did she do it? She says there is no time to teach you, but she knows another way, and when you come back from the shadows, you'll be able to chew much meat for her with your wonderful white teeth. The little old woman gave Daphne a smile so wide that her ears nearly fell into it. I certainly will. So now she will poison you to death, Carlay said. Daphne looked at Mrs. Gurgle, who nodded encouragingly. She will? Er, uh, really? Ah, uh, thank you said Daphne. Thank you very much. Mao ran. He didn't know why. His legs were doing it all by themselves. And the air was not air. It was thick, as thick as water, and black. But somehow he could see through it a long way, and move through it fast, too. Huge pillars rose out of the ground around him, and seemed to go up forever to a roof of surf. Something silvery and very quick shot past him and disappeared behind a pillar and was followed by another one, and another. Fish, then, or something like fish. So he was underwater, underwater looking up at the waves. He was in the dark current. Lokaha, he shouted. Hello, Mao, said the voice of Lokaha. I'm not dead. This is not fair. Fair? I'm not sure I know that word, Mao. "'Besides, you were nearly dead, certainly more dead than alive, and dying a little more every moment.' Mao tried to go faster, but he was already running faster than he had ever run before. "'I'm not tired. I can keep going forever. This is some kind of a trick, right? There must be rules even to a trick.' "'I agree,' said Lokaha. "'And this is a trick.' "'This is safe, isn't it?' said Daphne. She was lying down on a mat by Mao who still seemed as limp as a doll apart from the twitching legs. And it will work, won't it? She tried to keep the wobble out of her voice, but it was one thing to be brave, 
and two things to be brave and determined when it was really only an idea at the moment, and definitely another matter entirely when you could see Mrs. Gurgle out of the corner of your eye, busy at work. Yes, said Carlay. You are sure, are you? said Daphne. Oh, it sounded so weedy. She was ashamed of herself. Carlay gave her a little smile and went over to Mrs. Gurgle, who was squatting by the fire. Baskets of dried things had been brought down from their hanging place in one of the huts, and Daphne knew the rule. The nastier and more dangerous, the higher. These had practically been on the roof. When Carlay spoke to her, acting like a pupil talking to a respected teacher, the old woman stopped sniffing at a handful of what looked like dusty bean pods and looked across at Daphne. There was no smile or wave. This was Mrs. Gurgle at work. She said something out of the corner of her mouth and threw all the pods into the little three-legged cauldron in front of her. Carlay came back. She says, safe is not sure, sure not safe. There is just do or do not do. I was drowning and he saved me, thought Daphne. Why did I ask that stupid question? Make it sure, she said. Really sure. On the other side of the room, Mrs. Gurgle grinned. Can I ask another question? When I'm, you know, there, what should I do? Is there anything I should say? The reply came back. Do what is best. Say what is right. And that was it. Mrs. Gurgle did not go in for long explanations. When the old woman hobbled across with half an oyster shell, Carlay said, You must lick up what is on the shell and lie back. When the drop of water hits your face, you will wake up. Mrs. Gurgle gently put the shell in Daphne's hand and made a very short speech. She says, You will come back because you have very good teeth, Carlay volunteered. Daphne looked at the half-shell. It was a dull white, and empty except for two little greeny-yellow blobs. It didn't seem much for all that effort. She held it close to her mouth and looked up at Carlay. The woman had put her hand in a gourd of water, and now she held it high over Daphne's mat. She looked down with a drop of water glistening on the end of her finger. "'Now,' she said. Daphne licked the shell. It tasted of nothing, and let herself fall back. And then there was the moment of horror. Even as her head hit the mat, the drop of water was falling toward it. She tried to shout, "'That's not enough tight!' And then there was darkness, and the boom of the waves overhead. Mao ran onward, but the voice of Lokaha still sounded very close. "'Are you tiring, Mao? Do your legs ache for rest?' "'No,' said Mao. "'But these rules, what are they?' "'Oh, Mao, I only agreed there must be rules. "'That doesn't mean I have to tell you what they are. "'But you must catch me, yes?' "'You are correct in your surmise,' said Lokaha. "'What does that mean? You guessed right. "'Are you sure you're not tiring?' "'Yes.' "'In fact, strength flowed into Mao's legs. "'He had never felt so alive. "'The pillars were going past faster now.' He was overtaking the fish which panicked away, leaving silvery trails. And there was light on the dark horizon. It looked like buildings, like white buildings as big as the ones Pilu had told him about in Port Mercia. What were buildings doing down here? Something white flashed past under his feet. He glanced down and almost stumbled. He was running over white blocks. They were blurred by his speed, and he didn't dare to slow down, but they looked exactly the right size to be god anchors. "'This is wonderful, wonderful,' said Lokaha. 
Now, did you bother to wonder if you are running the wrong way? Two voices had said those words, and now arms grabbed him. This way! screamed Daphne, right in his ear, as she tugged him back the way he had come. Why didn't you hear me? But, Mao began, straining to look back at the white buildings, there was something like a twist of smoke coming out of them, or perhaps it was a clump of weeds flapping in the current, or a ray skimming toward them. I said this way! Do you want to die forever? Run! Run! But where was the speed in his legs? It was like running through water now, real water. He looked at Daphne, who was half towing him. How did you get here? Apparently, I'm dead. Will you try to keep up? And whatever you do, don't look back. Why not? Because I just did. Run faster. Are you really dead? Yes, but I'm due to get well soon. Come on, Mrs. Gurgle. The drop was falling. Silence fell like a hammer made of feathers. It left holes in the shape of the sound of the sea. They stopped running, not because they intended to, but because they had to. Mao's feet hung uselessly above the ground. The air turned grey. "'We are in the steppes of Lokaha,' he said. "'He has spread his wings over us.' Words seized Daphne's tongue. It was only a few weeks since she'd heard them before at the funeral of Cabin Boy Scatterling, who had been killed in the mutiny. He'd had red hair and pimples, and she hadn't liked him much, but she'd cried when the sailcloth-wrapped body had disappeared under the waves.' Captain Roberts was a member of the Conducive Brethren, who accepted a version of the Gospel of St. Mary Magdalene as, well, gospel. She was quite sure that there had been a female disciple because, as she explained to a surprised Captain Roberts, our Lord is always shown wearing white, and someone must have seen to it that he always had a clean robe. She'd never heard this piece read down at Holy Trinity, but she had tucked it into her memory, and now it came out, "'screamed like a battle-cry. "'And those that perish in the sea, "'the sea shall not hold them. "'Though they be broken and scattered, "'they will be made whole. "'They will rise again on that morning, "'clad in new raiment. "'In ships of the firmament "'they will climb among stars. "'Mrs. Gurp. "'Chapter 9. Rolling the Stone Water splashed on Daphne's face. She opened her eyes, and her mouth said, Girl! Carlet and the old woman looked down on her, smiling. As she blinked in the light, she felt Mrs. Gurgle gently pulling something out of her hair. But something else was happening. Memory was flowing out of her mind in a tide. The face of death, the great pillars of the world, the white slabs, they sped into the past like silver fish, fading as they went. She turned to the mat beside her. Mao lay still and snored. No reason to get excited, she thought, feeling a little light-headed. He had been so cold, and she'd brought him up here to keep him warm. There had been something that happened. The shape of it was still in her head, but she couldn't fill it in, except there was a silver fish, she wondered aloud. Mrs. Gurgle looked very surprised and said something to Carley, who smiled and nodded. "'She says you are indeed a woman of power,' Carley said. "'You pulled him out of a dark dream.' "'I did. I can't remember. But there was a fish in it.' The hole in her memory was still there when Carley had gone, and there was still a fish in it. Something big and important had happened, and she had been there, and all she could remember was that there had been a fish in it. Mrs. Gurgle had curled up in her corner, and it looked as if she was asleep. 
Daphne was certain that she wasn't. She'd be peeking through eyelids that were almost closed and listening so hard that her ears would try to flap. All the women took far too much interest in her and Mao. It was like the maids back home gossiping. It was quite silly and, and quite unnecessary. It really was. Mao looked quite small on the mat. The twitching had stopped, but he had curled up in a ball. It was a shock now to see him so still. Ermintrude, said her voice in the air. Yes, she said, and added, You are me, aren't you? When he is asleep, he still dreams of dark waters. Touch him, hold him, warm him, let him know he is not alone. It sounded like her own voice, and it made her blush. She could feel the hot pinkness rising up her neck. That wouldn't be seemly, she hissed, before she could stop herself. Then she wanted to shout, That wasn't me, that was some old woman's stupid granddaughter. So who are you? said the voice in the air. Some creature who knows how to feel but not how to touch? Here? In this place? Mao is alone. He thinks he has no soul, so he is building himself one. Help him. Save him. Tell him the stupid old men are wrong. The stupid old— Daphne began, and felt a memory uncoil. The grandfathers? Yes. Help him roll away the stone. He is a woman's child, and he is crying. Who are you? she asked the air. The voice came back like an echo. Who are you? Then the voice went, leaving not even a shape in the silence. I've got to think about this, Daphne thought, or perhaps not. Not now, in this place, because maybe there's such a thing as too much thinking. Because however much of a Daphne you yearn to be, there is always your ermintrude looking over your shoulder. Anyway, her thoughts added, Mrs. Gurgle is here, so she counts as a chaperone, and a better one than poor Captain Roberts, since she's nothing like as dead. She knelt by Mao's mat. The voice had been right. There was a trickle of tears down his face, even though he seemed fast asleep. She kissed the tears, because this felt like the right thing to do, and then tried to get an arm under him, which was really hard to manage, and in any case her arm went to sleep and then got pins and needles, and she had to pull it out. So much for romance, she decided. She dragged her own mat over to his and lay down on it, which meant that an arm could go over him without too much difficulty, but also that she had to rest rather awkwardly with her head on her other arm. But after a while his hand came up and grasped hers gently, at which point, and despite the extreme discomfort, she fell asleep. Mrs. Gurgle waited until she was sure that Daphne was sleeping, and then she uncurled her hand and looked at the little silver fish she had picked out of the girl's hair. It coiled backward and forward in her palm. She swallowed it. It was only a dream fish, but such things are good for the soul. Daphne woke up just as the first light of dawn was painting the sky pink. She was stiff in muscles she'd never known she possessed. How did married couples manage? It was a mystery. Mao was snoring gently and didn't stir at all. How could you help a boy like that? He wanted to be everywhere and do everything, and so he'd probably try to do more than he should and end up in trouble again, and she would have to sort it out again. She sighed, a sigh that was older than she was. Her father had been the same, of course. He'd spend all night working on dispatch boxes for the Foreign Office, with a footman on duty at all times to bring him coffee and roast duck sandwiches. It was quite usual for the maids to find him still at his desk in the morning, fast asleep with his head on a map of Lower Sidonia. Her grandmother used to make sniffy remarks like, 
I suppose His Majesty doesn't have any other ministers. But now Daphne understood. He'd been like Mao, trying to fill the hole inside with work so that it didn't overflow with memories. Right now she was glad she was alone. Apart from the snoring of Mao and Mrs. Gurgle, there was no sound but the wind and the boom of the waves on the reef. On the island, that was what counted as silence. "'Show us your drawers,' floated in through the doorway. "'Oh, yes, and the wretched parrot. "'It really was very annoying. "'You often didn't see it for days "'because it had picked up a deep, cheerful hatred of the pantaloon birds "'and took a huge delight in annoying them at every opportunity. "'And then, just when you had a moment that was quiet and a bit, well, spiritual, "'it was suddenly all over the place shouting, "'Show us your underthings!' "'She sighed. "'Sometimes the world ought to be better organised. Then she listened for a while and heard the bird fly off up the mountain. Right, she thought, first things first. So first she went out to the fireplace and set some salt-pickled beef to simmering in a pot. She added some roots that Carly had said were okay, and one half of a very small red pepper. It had to be just one half, because they were so hot that a whole one burned her mouth, although Mrs. Gurgle ate them raw. Anyway, she owed the old woman a lot of chewed beef. And now for the big test. Things shouldn't be allowed to just happen. If she was going to be a woman of power, she had to take charge. She couldn't always be the ghost girl pushed around by events. Right. Should she kneel? People didn't seem to kneel here, but she didn't want to be impolite, even if she was talking to herself. Hands together? Eyes closed? It was so easy to get things wrong. The message came right away. You did not put a spear into Twinkle's hand said her own voice in her own head, even before she'd had time to think how to begin. She thought, Oh dear, whoever it is, they know that I still think of the baby as Twinkle. Are you a heathen god of some sort? she asked. I've been thinking about this, and, well, gods do talk to people, and I understand there are quite a lot of gods here. I just want to know if there's going to be any thunder and lightning, because I really don't like that, or if I've gone mad and I'm hearing voices. However, I have dismissed this hypothesis because I don't believe that people who have really gone mad think that they have gone mad, so wondering if you've gone mad means that you haven't. I just want to know who I'm talking to, if you don't mind. She waited. Ah, uh, I apologise for calling you heathen, she added. There was still no reply. She didn't know whether to be relieved or not, and decided instead to be a bit hurt. She coughed. All right. Very well, she said, standing up. At least I tried. "'I'm sorry to have trespassed on your time,' she turned to leave the hut. "'We would take the newborn child and make his little hand grasp a spear, "'so that he would grow up to be a great warrior and kill the children of other women,' said the voice. "'We did it. The clan said so, the priests said so, the gods said so. "'And now you come, and what do you know of the custom?' the voice went on. "'And so the first thing the baby touches is the warmth of his mother, "'and you sing him a song about stars.' Was she in trouble? Look, I'm really sorry about the Twinkle song, she began. It was a good song for a child, said the voice. It began with a question. This was getting very strange. Have I done something wrong or not? How is it that you hear us? We are blown about by the wind and our voices are weak, but you, a trouser man, heard our struggling silence. How? Had she been listening? Daphne wondered. Perhaps she'd never stopped after all those days in the church after her mother died, saying every prayer she knew, 
waiting for even a whisper in reply. She hadn't been looking for an apology. She wasn't asking for time to run backward. She just wanted an explanation that was better than it's the will of God, which was grown-up speak for because. It had seemed to her, thinking about it in her chilly bedroom, that what had happened was very much like a miracle. After all, it had been a terrible storm, and if the doctor had managed to get there without his horse being struck by lightning, that would have been a miracle, wouldn't it? That's what people would have said. Well, in that big, dark, rainy, roaring night, the lightning had managed to hit quite a small horse among all those big thrashing trees. Didn't that look like a miracle too? It was almost exactly the same shape, wasn't it? In any case, besides, didn't they call something like this an act of God? She'd been very polite when she put the question to the archbishop, and in her opinion it had been really unreasonable for her grandmother to scream like a baboon and drag her out of the cathedral by her ear. But she had kept looking out for a voice, a whisper, a word that would let it all make sense. She just wanted it all... sorted out. She looked up into the gloomy roof of the hut. I heard you because I was listening, she said. Then listen to us, girl who can hear those who have no voices. And you are? We are the grandmothers. I've never heard of the grandmothers. Where do you think little grandfathers come from? Every man has a mother, and so does every mother. We gave birth to little grandfathers, and filled them with milk, and wiped their bottoms, and kissed their tears away. We taught them to eat, and showed them what food was safe, so that they grew up straight. We taught them the songs of children, which have lessons in them, and then we gave them to the grandfathers, who taught them how to kill other women's sons. The ones who were best at this were dried in the sand and taken to the cave. We went back to the dark water, but part of us remains, here in this place where we were born and gave birth, and often died. The grandfathers shout at Mao all the time. They are echoes in the cave. They remember the battle cries of their youth over and over again like the talking bird. They are not bad men. We loved them, as sons and husbands and fathers. But old men get confused, and dead men don't notice the turning of the world. The world must turn. Tell Mao he must roll away the stone. And they left. She felt them slide out of her mind. That, thought Daphne, was impossible. Then she thought, up to now, anyway. They were real, and they're still here. They're what I felt when Twinkle was being born, as if the place was alive and on my side. Perhaps some voices are so old, everyone understands them. The light came back slowly, grey at first like the dawn. Daphne heard a faint noise close at hand, looked around, and saw a young girl standing in the hut doorway, staring at her in horror. She couldn't remember the girl's name because she had been here only a few days and was going to tell her off when she did remember that although the girl had arrived with some other survivors, none of them had been her relatives. And she'd been about to shout at her. Moving very carefully, Daphne crouched down and held out her arms. The child looked as though she was one heartbeat away from fleeing. What is your name? The girl looked down at her feet and whispered something that sounded like, Bleepy, that's a nice name said Daphne, and gently drew the child to her. As the sobs began to shake the little body, she made a note to tell Carle. People were turning up every day now, and people who needed looking after were looking after others. 
That wasn't such a bad thing, but while everyone got food to eat and a place to sleep, there were other things that were just as important that tended to get overlooked when everyone was busy. Do you know about cooking, Blibby? she asked. There was a kind of muffled nod. Good. And do you see that man lying on the mat? Another nod. Good, good. I want you to watch over him. He has been ill. The meat in the pot will be ready when the sun has moved a hand width above the trees. I'm going to look at a stone. Tell him he must eat. Oh, and you must eat too. Where will I end up? she wondered as she hurried out of the place. I've slept in the same room as a young man without an official chaperone. Would Mrs. Gurgle count? Made beer? Have been going around practically naked and let gods talk with my mouth like the pelvic oracle in Greece in ancient times, although the voices of the grandmothers probably didn't count as gods, and, come to think of it, it was the Delphic oracle anyway, and technically I was nursing him, so that was probably permissible. She stopped and looked around. Who cared? Who, on this island, cared a fig? So who was she apologising to? Why was she making excuses? Roll away the stone? Why did everyone want him to do things? She'd heard about the stone. It was in a little valley in the side of the mountain, where women weren't supposed to go. There was no reason to go now, but she was angry at everyone, and she just wanted to get out in the fresh air and do something people didn't want her to. There were skeletons, probably, behind the stone, but so what? A lot of her ancestors were in the crypt of the church at home, and they never tried to get out, and they never spoke to people. Her grandmother would have had something to say about it if they did. Besides, it was broad daylight and obviously they'd only come out at night. Except, of course, it would be pure superstition to believe that they came out at all. She set off. There was a clear track leading uphill. The forest wasn't very big, she'd heard, and the track ran right through it. There were no man-eating tigers, no giant gorillas, no ferocious lizards from ancient times. In fact, it wasn't very interesting at all. But the thing about a forest that's only a few square miles in area is that when it's scrunched up into little crisscrossing valleys and every growing thing is fighting every other living thing for every ragged patch of sunlight, and you cannot see more than a few feet in any direction, and you can't judge where you are by the sound of the sea because the sound of the sea is very faint, and in any case, all around you, then the forest not only seems very big, but also appears to be growing all the time. That's when you began to believe it hated you as much as you hated it. Following the track was no use, because it soon became a hundred tracks, splitting and rejoining all the time. Things rustled in the undergrowth, and sometimes creatures that sounded a lot bigger than pigs galloped away on paths she could not see. Insects went zing and zip all around her, but they weren't as bad as the huge spiders that had woven their webs right across the paths and then hung in them, bigger than a hand and almost spitting with rage. Daphne had read in one of her books about the great southern pelagic ocean islands that, with a few regrettable examples, the larger and more fearsome the spider is, the less likely it is to be venomous. She didn't believe it. She could see regrettable examples everywhere, and she was sure that some of them were drooling. And suddenly there was clear daylight ahead. She would have run toward it, but there was, by good fortune not apparent at the time, a regrettable example using its web as a trampoline, and she had to ease her way past it with caution. This was just as well, because while the end of the path offered vast amounts of fresh air, there was a total insufficiency of anything to stand on. There was a little clearing, big enough for a couple of people to sit and watch the world, and then a drop all the way to the sea. 
It wasn't a totally sheer drop. You'd bounce off rocks several times before you ever hit the water. She took the opportunity to take a few breaths that didn't have flies in them. It would have been nice to see a sail on the horizon. In fact, it would have been narratively satisfying, she considered, but at least she could see that the day was getting on. She wasn't scared of other people's ghosts much, but she did not fancy an evening walk through this forest. And getting back shouldn't be too hard, should it? All she had to do was take a downward path every time she found one. Admittedly, taking the upward path at every opportunity, or at least every up path not blocked by a particularly evil-looking, regrettable example, had completely failed to work, but logic had to triumph in the end. In a way, it did. After a change of path, she stepped out into a small valley, held in the arms of the mountain, and there, ahead of her, was the stone. It couldn't be anything else. There were trees here and there in the valley, but they were sorry-looking things and half-dead. The ground beneath them was covered with bird doodars. A little way in front of the stone, a large bowl, also of some kind of stone, sat on a tripod made of three big rocks. Daphne peered into it with a kind of shameful curiosity, because, to make no bones about it, it was, in this place, just the kind of big stone bowl that you'd expect to have a few skulls in it. There was something in the brain that said, Sinister-looking valley, plus half-dead trees, plus ominous doorway, equals skulls in a bowl, or possibly on a stick. But even by listening to it, she felt she was being unfair to Mao and Kale and the rest of them. Human skulls never came up in day-to-day -day conversation. More importantly, they never came up at lunch. The sickly smell of sour, sticky, demon drink rose from the bowl. It was stale, but couldn't have been very good to start with. It was a terrible thing to admit but she was getting really good at making beer. Everyone said so. It was just some kind of a knack, Carlay had said, or at least had partly said and partly gestured, and that being able to make beer so well meant she would be able to get a very fine husband. Her getting married still seemed to be the big topic of discussion in the place. It was like being in a Jane Austen novel, but one with far less clothing. It was windy up here, and colder than it was down below. It wasn't a place where you'd want to be at night. Oh, well, time to say what she had to say. She marched up to the stone, stuck her fists on her hips, and said, Now listen to me, you. I know about ancestors. I've got lots of ancestors. One of them was a king, and that's about as ancestral as you can be. I'm here about Mao. He tries to do everything, and you just bully him all the time. He's doing wonderful things, and he's nearly killed himself, and you never even thank him. Is that any way to behave? "'But it's how your ancestors behave,' said her conscience. "'What about the way their pictures all stare at you in the long gallery? "'What about the way your father keeps spending all that money on the hall "'just because his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather built it?' "'Yes, what about your father?' "'I know what happens to people who get bullied,' she shouted even louder this time. "'They end up thinking they really are no good. "'It doesn't matter that they work so hard they fall asleep at their desks. "'It's still never enough.' They get timid and jumpy and make wrong decisions, and that means more bullying, be because, you see, the bully is never going to stop whatever they do, and my—the person being bullied will do anything to make it stop, but it never will. I'm not going to put up with that, do you understand? If you don't mend your ways, in very short order, there will be trouble, understand? I'm shouting at a rock, she thought, as her voice echoed off the mountain. What am I expecting it to do? Reply? "'Is there anyone listening?' she yelled, and thought, "'What do I do if someone says yes?' "'Well, for that matter, what do I do if they say no?' 
nothing happened, in quite an offensive way, considering she'd taken a lot of trouble to get up here. I've just been snubbed by a cave full of dead old men. Someone was standing behind her, someone she hadn't heard coming, but she was angry at all sorts of things, and right now was mostly angry at herself for shouting at a rock, and whatever it was behind her, it was going to get the sharp end of her tongue. One of my ancestors fought in the Wars of the Roses, she announced haughtily, without looking round, and in those wars you were supposed to wear a red rose or a white rose to show whose side you were on. But he was very attached to a pink rose called Lady Lavinia, which we still grow at the hall, actually, so he ended up fighting both sides at once. He lived, too, because everyone thought it was bad luck to kill a madman. That's what you need to know about my family. We might be pig-headed and stupid, but we do fight. She spun around. Don't you dare creep up on... Oh. Something went knap. It was a pantaloon bird staring up at her with an affronted expression on its beak. That wasn't the most noticeable thing about it, however, which was that it was not alone. There were at least fifty of the birds, with more flying in. Now there was sound, because the big birds had the aerodynamics of a brick in any case, and in aiming to land near Daphne, they were put off their concentration and mostly crashed on other pantaloon birds in clouds of feathers and angry beak snapping. Snap, snap. It was a bit like being in a snowfall. It's all fun and games at the start, a winter wonderland, and you think because it's soft it's harmless, and then you realise you can't see the path any more, and it's getting dark and the snow is blotting out the sky. A big bird, out of sheer luck, landed on her head, scrabbling for a foothold in her hair with claws like old men's hands. She screamed at it and managed to force it off, but they were still piling up around her, pushing and panapping at one another. She could hardly think in the storm of noise and stink and feathers, but it seemed they weren't actually attacking her. They just wanted to be where she was, wherever that was. Oh, yes, the stink. Nothing stank like a lot of pantaloon birds up close. On top of the ordinary dry, bony bird smell, they had the worst breath of any living creature. She could feel it hitting her skin like scrubbing brushes, and all the time they pnapped, each trying to out-pnap all the others, so that she nearly didn't hear the cry of rescue. Show us your drawers! Once I was an awful drinker, now I'm a dreadful stinker! The birds panicked. They hated the parrot as much as it hated them, and when a pantaloon bird wants to get away fast, it makes sure it leaves behind anything not wanted on the journey. Daphne crouched down and put her hands over her head as a rain of bones and lumps of fish pattered down. Perhaps the noise was the worst part, but when you got down to it, it was all worst. A golden-brown shape leaped past her with a coconut in each hand. It kicked and staggered its way through the panicking birds until it reached the big stone bowl, which was full of pantaloon birds like flowers in a vase. It raised shells high in the air over the bowl, and in one sharp movement smashed them together. Beer poured out, filling the air with its scent. Instantly the birds' beaks swung toward the bowl, seeking the beer like a compass needle seeks north. Daphne was immediately forgotten. "'I wish I was dead,' she said to the world in general, pulling bones out of her hair. "'No, I wish I was in a nice warm bath with proper soap and towels, and after that I wish I was in another bath, because, believe me, this is a two-bath head, and then I wish I was dead. I think this is the worst thing,' she paused, because, yes, there had been something worse, and always would be, and went on, "'the second worst thing that had ever happened to me.' Mao crouched down beside her. "'Men's place,' he said, grinning. "'Yes, it looks like one,' snapped Daphne. She stared at Mao. "'How are you?' 
Mao's brow wrinkled, and she knew that one wasn't going to work. They had got a language working pretty well now, thanks to Pilu and Kale, but it was for simple everyday things, and how are you was too complicated because it didn't really ask the question you thought it asked. She could see Mao working it out. Uh, I am because one day my mother and my father, he began, but she had been halfway ready for this. I mean here, she said loudly. There were several soft thumps while he thought about this. The pantaloon birds were falling over, like an elderly lady who has had too much sherry on Christmas Day. Daphne wondered if they were poisoned by the beer, because none of them had sung a song, but she didn't think so. She had seen one eat a whole dead crab that had been lying in the sun for days. Besides, as they lay there, their beaks trembled, and they made happy little pnap-pnap noises. As they fell over, thirsty ones took their places. "'The little girl told me you had said something about a stone,' said Mao. "'Then I had to have a bowl of beef,' she insisted. "'Then I came as fast as I could, but she can't run very fast,' he pointed. Blibby was walking up the valley, treading carefully in order to avoid snoring birds. "'She said you told her she has to watch over me.' They sat and waited, avoiding each other's gaze. Then Mao said, "'Um, the way it works is that the birds drink the beer, but the spirit of the beer flies to the grandfathers.' That's what the priests used to say. Daphne nodded. We have bread and wine at home, she said, and thought, Oops, I won't try to explain that one. They have cannibals down here. It could get confusing. I don't think it's true, though, said Mao. Daphne nodded, and then thought a bit more. Perhaps things can be true in special ways, she suggested. No, people say that when they want to believe lies, Mao said flatly, and they usually do. There was another pause which was filled by the parrot. With its mortal enemies paralysed by the demon drink, it had swooped down and was industriously pulling their pants off them, which meant very neatly and carefully plucking out every white feather on their legs while making happy but fortunately muffled parrot noises. "'They look very pink,' said Daphne, glad of something innocent, more or less, to talk about. "'Do you remember running?' said Mao, after a while. "'Yes.' "'Sort of. I remember the fish. Silverfish, long and thin. Like eels, yes,' said Daphne. Feathers were drifting across the valley in clumps. "'So it did happen, did it?' "'I suppose so.' "'I mean, was it a dream, or was it real?' "'Mrs. Gurgle says yes,' said Daphne. "'Who is Mrs. Gurgle, please?' "'The very old woman,' Daphne explained. "'You mean Ma Isgala Egiskaga Gol. Probably. And she says yes to what? Your question. I think she means it wasn't the right one. Look, does Lokaha talk to you? Yes. Really? Yes. In your head, like your dreams? Yes, but I know the difference, said Mao. That's good, because the grandmothers have been talking to me. Who were the grandmothers? Blibby, if that was really her name, had caught up with them long before Daphne had finished talking, and Mao had finished understanding. She sat at their feet, playing with pantaloon bird feathers. Mao picked up a feather and twiddled it in his fingers. They don't like warriors, then. They don't like people being killed. Nor do you. Have you heard of the raiders? asked Mao, brushing a feather off his face. Of course. Everyone's talking about them. They have great war galleys, and they hang the skulls of their enemies along the sides of them. 
Oh, and enemy means everyone else. We have perhaps thirty people here now. Some more arrived this morning, but most of them can hardly stand. They survived the wave, but they weren't going to wait for the raiders to come. Well, you've got enough canoes. Can't we just head east? She said that without thinking, and then sighed. We can't, can we? No. If we had more able-bodied people, and time to get provisions together, then we could try it. But it's eight hundred miles of open ocean. The weaker people would die. They came here to be safe. They call this island the place where the sun is born, because it's in the east. They look to us. Then we could hide until the raiders go away. Roll away the stone, the grandmother said. Mao stared at her. And hide among the dead men? Do you think we should? No, we should fight. She was amazed at how fast the words came out. They had been pushed out by her ancestors, all those calm stone knights down in the crypt. They'd never ever thought about hiding, even when it was the sensible thing to do. Then I will think of a way, said Mao. What do the grandfathers say? I don't hear them any more. I just hear clicks and insect noises. Perhaps the grandmothers have told them off, said Daphne, giggling. My grandmother was always telling my grandfather off. He knew everything there is to know about the fifteenth century, but he was always coming down to breakfast without his teeth in. They fell out in the night, asked Mao, puzzled. No, he used to take them out to clean them. They were new teeth made out of animal bone. You trouser men can give an old man new teeth. What will you tell me next? That you can give him new eyes? Um, yes, actually, something very much like that. Why are you so much smarter than us? I don't think we are, really. I think it's just that you have to learn to make things when it's cold for half the year. I think we got our empire because of the weather. Anything was better than staying at home in the rain. I'm pretty certain people looked out of the window and rushed off to discover India and Africa. Are they big places? Huge, said Daphne. Mao sighed and said, With the people who leave stones. Who? The god anchors, said Mao. I understand Ataba now. I don't think he believes in his gods, but he believes in belief. And he also thinks trousermen came here a long time ago, he added, shaking his head. Maybe they brought the stones as ballast. It must have happened like that. Look at all the stone Judy the Sweet brought. Worthless rock to you, all kinds of tools to us. And maybe they gave us metal and tools, like giving toys to children. And we carved the stones because we wanted them to come back. Isn't that how it would go? We are a little island. Tiny. The Phoenicians, thought Daphne glumly. They went on long, long voyages. So did the Chinese. What about the Aztecs? Even the Egyptians? Some people say they visited further Australia. And who knows who might have been around thousands of years ago? He's probably right. But he looks so sad. Well, you might be a small island, she said. But you are an old one. The grandmothers must have some reason for telling you to roll away the big stone. They looked at the stone, which glowed a golden yellow in the afternoon light. You know, I can't remember a longer day than this, said Daphne. I can, said Mao. Yes, that was a long day, too. It takes ten strong men to move the stone, said Mao, after a while. We don't have that many. I've been thinking about that, said Daphne. How many would it take? if one of them was Milo, and he had a crowbar made of steel. 